Amen. For my wife and I, we have kind of broken into a period of our uh, life as parents where we are afforded the uh, ability to leave our children at home um, by themselves from time to time. The older ones um, can kind of take care of themselves and they also have the ability to take care of the younger ones uh, as well. And so that's kind of like a sort of a new dynamic for us. But one of the interesting things that accompanies a date night or an activity that is um, leaving them alone is that before we leave the house, there is a, a long blast or series of one-sentence instructions or reminders that we give to them uh, before we are about to leave the house. And so if you were a fly on the wall uh, in our house right before we leave, this is some, somewhat of a sample of what you would hear. Uh, don't forget, don't answer the door. Keep the phone close by and make sure the ringer is turned on. Look out and look after one another. Make wise choices about what you eat tonight. Now, what's our phone number again? Now, make sure you get to bed on time. What time are you going to go to bed? Now, don't forget, no one is in charge. So don't be bossy. You guys look after each other. Don't leave the oven on if you end up cooking something. Don't load the wood stove. It should be good, but if you absolutely have to, just be really careful and shut off the movie if it grieves the Holy Spirit, you know. And, and, and so, you know, we're giving them this, this blast of things, and they're going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. But in the process of that, what we are seeking to do is call to mind or draw upon a whole lifetime of education and experience that they already have, and hoping that by that little one-sentence reminder, uh, everything that they have learned and everything that they know up to this point will be brought back into their memory in an instant and they'll be able to seamlessly apply it uh, in that evening while we are away and they are home alone. And it is somewhat in that spirit now that the Apostle Paul signs off with the Corinthian church at this time. He closes out and he touches four themes in the chapter tonight, each with their respective condensed exhortations. And so he's going to talk to us about giving, uh, that is the offering in the church or giving as Christians, about planning, about leading, and also about watching. And you almost get the sense that Paul the Apostle is like a preacher giving a sermon and he's running out of time. And so he just wants to get it all in, in one last blast before he signs off and closes the epistle. And so the Apostle Paul no doubt had given to these Christians teaching in each of these areas, because you can tell by the lack of uh, content that he gives to each one of these things, that it was just by serving or to serve a reminding to them that they might uh, um, give themselves to the things that he had to say. And so he begins in, in the first part of the chapter talking to them about giving. And so in verse one, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings or collections or offerings when I come. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality or your generosity unto Jerusalem, where there were uh, poor saints, there was a famine going on for reasons 
um, that we can discern as we read the book of Acts. And then Paul says, and if it be meet or necessary that I go also, then they shall go with me. And so uh, these, this exhortation concerning giving, it's very short, just four verses, but it's actually quite pregnant uh, in terms of as we unpack it, understanding this whole concept of, of, of Christian giving or giving in the church as it relates to our walk with the Lord and support for his work. And the first thing that we see as we um, consider what Paul said to them uh, in this line of thought is that um, giving is a universal fact or universal way in which God provides uh, monetarily or the practical needs of seeing his work done upon the earth. And that's true from Genesis to Revelation. And that is that God has chosen to fund earthly operations through the gifts of his people. Now, there's a lot of different ways that God could have done it. He didn't have to make it that it would be done that way, but he has elected in his sovereign wisdom that that be the way that his work is furthered. Now, why? Why would God make giving the way that his work continues? We have to first answer the question, well, why not or, why, or not why? And the answer to that you know, is, or, is that it is never because it's a need that God has. That he never asks us to give or, or bids us to give or the Bible doesn't command us to give because God has some great need and somehow he needs man's help in order to have that need met or to get his work accomplished on the earth. The Bible says that God himself says, in fact, by the Spirit, he says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he says, if I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. And so it isn't that God has this need and that he is having financial problems and that unless you and I give to his work and support it, that it's not going to go forward upon the earth. That is absolutely false. We see in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, that God just said, let there be light. And what was there? There was light. He spoke all things into existence. And if God can speak matter into existence, he could speak gold into existence if he wanted. He could manipulate bank accounts and turn the red into the black without anybody knowing it. He could do it any way that he wants to. Yeah, we wish that he would, right? Why doesn't he do it that way, you know? But he doesn't ask us to give because it's out of need. Then why does he? Well, first of all, it's for the sake of those that give. It's for our sake. Because when we give, what it is, first of all, is it gives to us a reminder and perspective of the fact that everything that we have belongs to God anyways. In Deuteronomy, it talks about how if you are wealthy or if you can attain wealth, that God's the one that gave you the ability to have that and get that in the first place. And that everything that we have is from him. And so when we give, it's an opportunity for us to remember that, God, we are simply returning to you what is yours. It's also a factor in it, in the whole thing, that when we give, we are releasing a little bit of our selfishness. There's an attachment to our things or to our substance that's broken when we release it. And so it's for the sake of those that give. And second of all, it's also for the sake of those that are supported. Now, for, for those of us that are supported in ministry and that support comes from the gifts of God's people, that's an extremely humbling thing to consider, is that my work 
for the Lord is being funded by the offerings of people that are giving, that earned that money by the sweat of their brow. And for me to think about that is extremely humbling. And, and it also has a, 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 a level of accountability to it, is that I don't one day want to stand before Jesus and stand before you, and then when all things are revealed and the secrets of the heart and everything is known, that I was a poor steward over the support that was given to pay my salary. And so for the sake of those that are supported, God ordained that that money would come from the people that are being served. And it creates an automatic sense of accountability and stewardship. It also reminds us that we're called to serve. And in that, in saying that, what I mean is this is that if you essentially are paying my salary or supporting those that are feeding you, then that means that I work in part for you. And so it reminds me that I'm a servant to those whom I'm ministering to, not a Lord over, but a servant to. And so God in his wisdom has elected that that be the way that ministry is, is, is handled. A third reason is because it's a really good witness to those that are on the outside. That is, when someone comes into a church like this that is an unbeliever, and they see the operation that, that's going on here, and they read the weekly bulletin, and they walk through the lobby, and they see the announcements, and they get a taste of the vastness of the things that go on here in this church, and just the way that it's run. And then they see that the, throughout the course of a service, or throughout the course of a week, a month, or a year, there's no offering plate that's being passed around, there's no one begging for money, and there's no evidence that that's a major emphasis on things. Well, a thinking person is going to ask the question, well, how in the world is this funded? How is it paid for? And the answer is it's paid for by the support of God's people. And that is that those that believe and know the power of God and the effectiveness of a holy church, that they're willing to separate themselves from their hard-earned money to support the work of God that becomes a witness in the mind and in the eyes of the unbeliever that says, if these people are willing to put their money where their profession is, then maybe there's something to it. I imagine that there probably has been more than one accountant that has seen the amount of money that's been given by a person to a local church by way of charitable donation and has had to stop and ask the question, why is this person willing to part with thousands of dollars in the course of a year to support a local church that doesn't even know that they, that, 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 you know that they have given in this way, that they get absolutely nothing for it. It's a witness to those that are unbelievers. Notice that it's a universal thing that God calls his people to. Do you see what Paul says there in verse 1? He says, even as I've set this in order, or the, the, the fact of this, in the churches of Galatia, so also do you. In other words, it isn't something that is for a, a one church body or one period of time, but it's something that's universal to all Christians. And that is this discipline of Christian giving. And Paul says, so you do it too. Just because you're in Corinth, and Corinth was somewhat affluent, maybe you could get by in Corinth and not be a part of the giving structure of the church and the church would go on just fine. But Paul says, don't let that mindset and mentality obscure or keep you from giving, stop you from giving. If you're being blessed in a church body and you're a part of it, then be supporting in it. You should have some skin in the game, so to speak. 
Um, the second thing that we, we see about giving in this little passage uh, that Paul gives to us here in verse 2 is, is that giving is to be something that is done consistently, something that's done proportionally to our income, and also something that's to be done with pure calculation or with clear calculation. Um, notice what he says there in verse 2. He says, upon the first day of the week. Now that is not something that happens once, but it's something that happens over and over again. And that is that our giving as Christians is something that is to be a regular discipline, something that is a regular part of what we do, that as often as God keeps giving to us, we're to continually return it to him. So upon the first day of the week, that is the consistency of it. Then notice what he says, second of all, he says, let every one of you lay by him in store according as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Notice that Paul bids them to be ready with an amount and with the the deliverance of that amount before the service starts. That is that your giving is to be between you and God and that it's not to be compelled by the emotional nature of the service that you're in. Imagine for a minute that you're there in Corinth and you didn't make a decision yet that day if you, what you're going to do concerning giving or if you're going to give it all. And then you come into church and you're sitting there and you look over and sitting next to you during the worship service or song portion or whatever they would do in those days is the Apostle Paul himself. And you're sitting next to Paul. And all of a sudden now, they, they, they pass the plate and there's an offering that's about to happen in the church and you're sitting next to Paul. What are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to dig a little deeper, right? Or if Paul's the one that's taking the offering and he talks to you about the struggles of the church in Jerusalem and how hard it is for them there and how fruitful his ministry is and he builds up this emotional plea for how you should be behind the work of God and dig deep today. Don't you think you might? Paul didn't want it to be done that way. He said, this is to be between you and God. Let him speak to your heart concerning what you're to do so that when you come, the issue's already been settled. There's no emotional part or or string attached to what you're doing. And third, notice um, that it's proportionate to how God has prospered you. In the New Testament, there is no law concerning the amount of money or the percentage of your paycheck or of your increase that you are to give to God. In the Old Testament, starting as far back as Abraham, who is the father of faith, we read that Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he had, or a tithe. That's what a tithe means. It means a tenth. He gave that to Melchizedek, who was the priest of the Most High God and the king of of the region of Salem, a picture, if not the Lord Jesus himself. We see in the life of Jacob that when Jacob had his revelation of God for the first time, uh, after leaving home and seeing the ladder Uh, ascending from heaven to earth and the angels of God ascending and descending and hearing the voice of God for the first time in his life. And his response to that revelation as God came to him, as he said, since the Lord is my God and he promises to lead me and that he's with me, he said, then a tenth or a tithe of everything that is given to me as an increase, I will return back to the Lord. Later on in the law, when Moses gave the command of God to the people as to how they were to worship under the covenant of the law, they were commanded to give the tithe or the tenth of their increase to God. And to them, he said, the tenth or the tithe is mine. He said, it's not even yours, it's mine under the covenant of the law. 
But by the time we come to the new covenant, we recognize and realize that we're no longer under the law. That the things which God bound the Israelites by, we are no longer bound by. And the law of New Testament giving is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says that God loves a cheerful giver. And that's as far as God goes in the New Testament. He doesn't tell us that there's a percentage. However, I find that the principle of the tithe is a very good guideline to go by. We recognize that Abraham and his relationship with God, that that was prior to the time period of the law. He wasn't under the law when he gave that to Melchizedek. He wasn't told to. He did it from his own free will. It was the same thing with Jacob, not something that he was told to do. It was something that he felt, this is proportionate. And the interesting thing about doing a tenth is that it equalizes the playing field because it is just as sacrificial for the person who makes $100 a year as it is for the person who makes $100,000 a year. It might hurt a little more for the person that makes $100,000 a year to give 10% because it's a greater sum of money, but it's proportionate to what they make. I also find it interesting in this concept is that when you read the Old Testament book of Malachi, the, old, the last book of the Old Testament, in chapter 3, there's an interesting promise that's made there. God says in Malachi 3, and it's the only time in the entire Bible that God says this, he says, test me. Every other time the Bible says, don't test me or don't tempt the Lord or you shall not tempt the Lord, but here you have permission. God says, test me in this. He says, if you give to me the tithe, the tenth, then you'll see if I will not pour out on you a blessing that you will not be able to contain. In essence, God says, test me in the tithe, try it, you'll like it. <laughs> and so Paul says, proportionate to what you make, between you and God, you establish the discipline of giving. Let it be done consistently, let it be done proportionately, and let it be done in simplicity uh, So uh, and with calculation. And so Paul says this. Now, also concerning giving that we see in this is that uh, there, there is a structure of accountability that's necessary between the giver and the receiver. Notice in verse three what he says. He says, and when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. In other words, I don't even want to touch the money that you give. When I come, we'll set it all in order. And then you choose out from among your own body a couple of people that will carry the offering to where it wants to go or where it needs to go. And if it's necessary, he says in verse four, that I go also, then they will go with me. There will never be in this ministry, Paul says, any opportunity for you to accuse me of getting rich off the backs of your offering. You're going to know where it goes and I'm going to make sure of that by sending your own people among you. Awesome accountability. And that's absolutely essential and necessary as it concerns uh, the offering of the Lord. We follow a model much like that uh, as, as it concerns the money getting to where it needs to go in this church as well. The pastors and the leaders of this church essentially do not know who gives what on a weekly basis. There are people from among the church body 
I think there's eight different teams that count uh, the money and, and then deliver it to, you know, the church secretary of how it's, you know, who then deposits it and all. It's so that the pastors will never look at a person and, and, and even be tempted to, to label them based upon the way that they give or, or how they contribute in, in the things of the Lord. And there's to be an accountability in those types of things. And Paul was certainly a proponent of that. And so uh, there's accountability and wisdom in the whole thing. I, I read about a conversation that took place between two women kind of on this subject, and it kind of paints it in, in a good light for us, I think. And that is that the one woman looked at the other woman, a younger woman to the older woman, and she said to her, she said, my church is way too expensive. She said, they're always talking about giving and always taking offerings. And man, it is such a drag. It's so expensive. And the older woman looked at the younger woman in her reply to this woman, when she said, you know, I remember a time long, long ago in my life when I had a son. And he, he came into the world, and, and from the very first day that he came into the world, man, was he expensive. He, I mean, we first of all had to buy diapers and formula, and then he had some medical problems early on in his life, and the expenses just increased. And then when he got into school, we had to pay for the uh, materials and for his schooling, and then he got into activities, and man, by the time he hit adolescence, the food bill shot through the roof, and the activities became more expensive as an education became more intense. And then he became 18 and he went off to college and boy, that expense was insane. And the things that he needed money for during that time, support and room and board and all the rest. And then when he was a senior in high school, he died unexpectedly. And then he was no longer expensive. And there was no expense at all to his life any longer. He cost me nothing. And she looked at that younger woman and she said, as long as the church is alive, it will cost something. But when it dies for lack of support, it won't cost us anything at all. And, and, you know, that really does put it in perspective is when we see the work of the Lord, we must understand that there's an expense that goes along with it on a practical way and that God has chosen that it be through the offerings of his people that that work is carried on in his wisdom. We're going to take an offering right now. <laughs> no, just, just kidding. We don't do that here. Paul moves from offering now and giving to planning in verse 5. He says, now, Paul liked to use that word when he changed subjects. He says, I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. He's going to pass through the region that's a little bit north of them, headed towards the south. And he says, and it may be that, that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to come right away because I've got things to do. But if I, if I were to come now, then I would have to leave very quickly. And I don't want to do that. I want to spend a little bit of time with you when I come. And so he says, uh, I will tarry with you for a little while if the Lord permits. Now, I find it interesting to see that this man, Paul, who was probably the captain and chief example of what it means to be led by the Holy Spirit. As you read his epistle uh, his, and read the book of Acts and you see his life. He was a man that was clearly directed by God. And it almost seems as you read his, his movements from one place to another that he was a man without a plan. That it just seemed like maybe he would wake up one morning and, and he'd sense that, okay, God's leading us. It's time for us to go and we're to move on. 
We find that that's not the case. We read often that Paul was a man that was diligent to make plans. He had a guideline or a framework of what he was going to do when and what he wanted to do. And, and that's an important thing for us to understand, is that as we walk with God, we're called to walk in the Spirit, meaning that he has the ability and the authority to interrupt our lives at any time and have us to do whatever. But that doesn't mean that we're to operate without a plan. In the book of James, James says, Woe unto you that say that we're going to do business here for a year and make money and then buy and trade and sell. He says, what you should say is if the Lord wills, we're going to do this or do that. But for us to not make plans is foolish because it means that we're just kind of living irresponsibly in a world that requires responsibility to live in. But for us to make plans and to leave God out of them or not give him the authority to overrule our machinery in our plans is also foolish because we're maybe planning ourselves out of the will of God. And so where's the balance? The balance is that we're to have plans with an open hand. That is, God, these are the things that I would like to do in the next months or years or the goals that I'm setting for myself. But God, whatever it is that you want to do in your sovereignty and what you see, let your will overrule my desire. And God, you do what you want. And that's the way that Paul lived his life. Now, the interesting thing is that none of these plans that Paul was making came to pass the way that he thought that they would. He, he did hopefully make it back to, to Corinth eventually, but not in the time frame that he writes here that he would like to. One to spend time with them, but he says, if the Lord permits, then I will uh, be back to you as soon as I can in the whole thing. We want to be flexible to what is necessary, and we want to be free to what God is fitting. Notice what he says uh, concerning where he is presently in verse 8. He says, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. And so if you're one who kind of likes to uh, um, monitor the practical or inside uh, things of the Bible, this is how we know that Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote the letter. Um, it was that time period that we read about in Acts chapter 19, as his, his, his time in Ephesus is highlighted for us there. And he says that I, I'm going to stay here at this time, at least until Pentecost. And here's why, he says in verse 9. For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. And so he wanted to stay in Ephesus because he said that right now, the best thing for God's plan in my life and what he's doing is for me to stay here because of this open door that I have here in this. Now, Ephesus was an extremely strategic place in the Roman Empire. It was a cultural epicenter, and it was a place of influence amongst those that lived in that part of the Roman Empire. It was also a hub of much idolatry, and Satan had a stronghold over that city. And Paul knew that if we can win Ephesus and crack it and gain it for the Lord— then that's going to increase the influence of the gospel throughout the whole region. And so he wanted to stay there. And he said, not only is this a good place for us to be strategically, but God is behind that and he is actually using us here in this place. Now, when Paul came to Ephesus, all he found were 12 disciples that were a little bit misguided and completely unempowered in their service to the Lord. 
And he was there for three months after, the, after he first landed, reasoning in the synagogue, as was his place, and, and, and making a case for Christianity. But it says that diverse people there were hardened, and many of them were speaking evil of that way and bringing opposition to Paul. But God opened a door for Paul to move the disciples into the school of one person whose name was Tyrannus, or the school of Tyrannus. It's the first instance of a church building in the New Testament when Paul rented that school for the daily teaching of the disciples. And out of that, for two years, the Apostle Paul was able to teach them the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Malachi and probably a lot of the gospel um, stories that had been recorded and passed on in the testimony of Christ himself. So Paul taught them the word of God so much so that it says that the word was published throughout the whole region thereabouts by those that had heard the word of God. And after that, it says that there were many miracles that were wrought by the hand of Paul. And so much so that there were people that would bring their sick uh, you know, family members and Paul would just send his sweatband or his tool pouch, his apron, and they would touch the people with it, and God would heal them by it. And there was an effective ministry that was taking place, a great and effectual door. People were coming into the city square and burning their magic books and their idols. A, a, a sum of money was kind of calculated to how much was burned, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Just an incredible work of the Lord that was going on there. And so it was an effective door that was open, and that's what Paul is talking about in this thing. And so after this three-year season that he's there, he also recognized that there were many adversaries. As you read on in Acts chapter 19, you read the, the, the account of this man whose name was Demetrius. And he was a silversmith by trade. And he gathered together all of the idol makers that lived there in Ephesus. And he said, this man Paul is ruining our business. Everyone is converting to Christianity and nobody is any longer purchasing our little silver and gold statues that we're making and they're driving us downward. Our profit margin is being ruined by this man, Paul. And so they started a riot in the city and the uproar was so great that the people were chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it involved the local governments to a point where they almost were in danger of having the deputies from Rome come because of the uproar of the whole thing. And the effect of that worked in a, in a way and that after those things, Paul stayed for a short season, but then he moved on along uh, uh, from that region become of, because of it. And he says that there are very uh, strong and great adver adversaries uh, for us in this um, place that we are. Now, what we learn, not in Acts 19, and not even here, as Paul talks about his time in Ephesus, but what we learn about those adversaries is that Ephesus was the most difficult place that the Apostle Paul served in the entire span of his ministry. Those three years were the hardest three years of his entire life. We read in the last chapter, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when he was talking about the resurrection, he said, if there's no resurrection, then why would I have fought with wild beasts in Ephesus? Not speaking of wild animals that, okay, well, the, you know, there was a break at the zoo and the lions got out. That wasn't the idea. But the opposition of those that opposed the gospel was so great in Ephesus that Paul says it was like fighting wild beasts. And it will forever be an imprint upon my, 
my heart and my mind the difficulty of what it was to minister while I was there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the chapter that we will see in our study together next week, the Apostle Paul will say in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the trouble that we had while we were in Asia. The only city Paul was in in Asia was the city of Ephesus. He says that we were pressed above measure, beyond strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. That the ministry in Ephesus was so difficult for Paul that he didn't think that he was going to survive it. In fact, he thought, this is the place where I will be killed for my service for the Lord, and I don't even want to go to another place and serve the Lord after this. That's how hard this is, the pressure of it. It seems like every time there that I would exhale, there was less air that I could breathe in the next time when I wanted to. The pressure was so incredibly great and the warfare so intense. But yet Paul would say to the Corinthians now, even in the midst of that difficulty, he would say, I'm going to stay in the battle right now because there's a great and effectual door that's opened unto me, even though there are many adversaries. And I wonder if you lay that over your own life and you think about the pressures that you're facing today. You think about the difficulty and the adversity that you're facing and every one of us is facing adversity in some way. But can you see through that adversity and through those difficulties why God has you where you are or what God is doing in your life where you are or in what you're in? And if you can, maybe like Paul, you could say, you know what, I'm going to be through this. I'm going to get to you at some point. But for now, I'm going to stay put right where I am because there's a great and effective door that's opened unto me. And it's important in our planning We keep two things in mind. One, we live in a practical world and that we've got a plan. But two, our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, everything that we do must be yielded into the hand of God and he has the right to overrule any one of the plans that we have and that we must remain submissive to that lest we find ourselves outside of the will of God. He moves from planning now to leadership in verse 10. He says, now... Again, changing subjects. If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he works the work of the Lord as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me. For I look for him with the brethren. Now, Paul had sent Timothy from Ephesus to Corinth. We read that in the book of Acts Oh, somewhere. In Acts chapter 19, I forgot what verse it is. I think it's verse 22 or somewhere there around. That Paul actually sent Timothy to Corinth. And now Paul sends letter to Corinth that once Timothy gets there, treat him a certain way and then send him back to me in peace. For I look for him to come with the brethren. And then verse 12 concerning Apollos. He says, touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren But his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have a convenient time. And so Paul says concerning Timothy, look out for him. Now amongst all of the associates that are listed with Paul throughout the the, the epistles and the book of Acts and those that worked with him, I think there's something like 95 different names given in the Bible of those that worked with Paul. Timothy was by far his favorite. He called Timothy his own son in the faith. Timothy was an interesting man. He was from the regions of Lystra and Derby. 
And in those two cities, this young man who had been influenced by Paul on his first missionary journey had been left behind, but the fire of the gospel had gotten into him. And he had made an effect so great in a circumference surrounding those two cities that he was known by name to the people there. And he was commended to Paul when Paul passed through the second time. And Paul said, huh, this man so effective. Come with me, Timothy. I want to disciple you and train you a little bit further. And Paul and Timothy worked so closely and Paul saw Timothy as such a treasure and an asset because of his character and his heart that later on he'll call him his own son in the faith. No one else does Paul give that kind of credence to. He says when he writes one of his letters, I think it's to the Philippians. Is that right? Philippians? Yeah, Philippians. He says to them, he says, I have no one like-minded like Timothy, that will naturally care for your estate. Everyone else seeks their own and not the things that are Christ Jesus, but he will care for you. Timothy, I can vouch for his character with all of my heart. And so Timothy was Paul's favorite. Now, the interesting thing is that Timothy was not at all the strongest of those that would work with Paul or the most dynamic. We find that he was young. He had to write to Timothy and say, Timothy, you need to stand up and be a man and don't let anyone despise your youth. Now, as a youth, he probably was somewhere between the ages of 30 and 40. But for someone who's going to take oversight over a church or have spiritual leadership and authority in people's lives, that's pretty young, isn't it? You know, I I say amen because that's where I am. I fall in that span, you know. And so I recognize, you know, why Paul would have to say, don't let anyone despise the fact that you're young in the whole thing. But there is a place in ministry for the young man. And Paul gives Timothy that place, telling him, don't just let them despise your youth. We also learn that Timothy was of the weaker sort. Paul would write to him and say, no longer drink only water, but use, and he doesn't say drink, he says use medicinally, a little wine for your stomach's sake, for your oft infirmities. In other words, Timothy could get sick fairly simply. He was sickly a little bit. And Paul would say, because of these ailments that you're constantly, do something about it. Don't be afraid to to, to take a prescription, so to speak, if you need it because of those infirmities. We also learn of Timothy that he was one who could be um, given to fear or anxiety. We read that here right in this part where um, Paul writes to this church at Corinth and he says, make sure that when Timothy's among you, that you make it as comfortable for him as possible, that he doesn't have to live among you in fear, fearfulness and anxiety and the whole thing. And what comforts me in this is this, is that to be a pastor does not mean that you have to be perfect. And that if you're not perfect as a pastor, you can still be useful to God. And I find great comfort. I hope you do too, because I don't think any of us here would claim perfection. I read today an article that was written by an old pastor, still alive, and he served in the ministry for a long time. And the title of the the article was Five Things I've Learned About Ministry That I Wish I Knew at the Beginning. And one of those things that he said, I think it was number three on his list of five, is he said that I learned, and, and a bunch of them were about grace, but this one was this. He said, I learned that I am the most needy person in my entire congregation is that it took me however many years of serving in the ministry to realize how incredibly weak I am as the one that God has called to lead. And God in his wisdom has often and, and, and does often call the weakest people and the most needy people to serve as leaders in his body. 
And he does that for, for reasons of humility and keeping pride out of, out of uh, the service and keeping self-glorying out and keeping um, the things in a place where God can bless and get the glory for it. But it's absolutely true. And Paul recognized in Timothy that he had a heart of gold and that his character was right where it needed to be, but that he was young, that he was weak, and that he had a propensity for anxiety and fear. And so Paul commends it. And in spite of all that weakness, he was Paul's favorite, his own son in the faith. He had the heart and the character of a true minister of God. He also speaks of this man, Apollos. And this is interesting. Because of the 95 people that Paul mentions that worked alongside of him, we get the hint as we read glimpses of Apollos that he was not Paul's favorite. That he was on the other side of that favorite spectrum uh, in relationship to Paul. Now, Apollos was known for his dynamics. He was an eloquent speaker. When he taught, it would cause people to connect with the text and with the story in a way that they would, they would grow from it and they would be brought into it and made part of it as eloquence has the ability to produce within the teachings, to bring someone right there into the thing. And Apollos had the ability to do that and he was dynamic. Now his issues were that he wasn't perfect in his doctrine. He needed Priscilla and Aquila to help him along a little bit. When Paul finally did come to Ephesus, the only people that had been influenced there were influenced by Apollos, and they needed a little correction in their doctrine. And we get the sense that he was different from Timothy and that his strengths were on the outward things, whereas Timothy's were on the inward things. But yet Paul, even though Apollos might have made some problems for him, and he did certainly in Corinth, as we've caught glimpses of it in the early chapters, that Paul still gives his, his endorsement to Apollos. And he doesn't feel as though Apollos has any responsibility to be in submission to him perfectly. Paul said, I urged Apollos to come to you, but it was not his will to come to you at this time. And Paul said, that's good enough. If he doesn't feel led of the Lord, then I'm good with that. Now, here's the interesting thing about Apollos, is that if it hadn't been for Apollos, Paul would never have had an open door in Ephesus. You'll recall, if you remember or if you've read the book of Acts, that when Paul was traveling with Luke and with Titus, it says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Meaning they wanted to go to Ephesus sooner than Paul got there, but the Holy Spirit said, no, Paul, I don't have that for you at this time but we read that God did send Apollos to Ephesus. And so God used Apollos to prep the ground for when things would be ready for Paul when he would come. And I love that, is that God doesn't always need to use the superstar, but sometimes he'll use someone who maybe is out of adjustment a little bit to set things up for things to be made ready for someone else at the proper time. You might be here in a place tonight where you're in a holding tank, a waiting period for the Lord. Lord, what do you have for me? And it feels like everything that you seek the Lord about, he's forbidding it. He's saying, no, I don't want you to do that right now. No, I don't want you to move there right now. No, that's not what I have for you right now. You say, God, what do you have? Don't worry. I'm laying the groundwork. And I might be using someone whom you'd never expect to prepare things for you. But in my time, I'll move you in, and then you'll have your effective season when you get there. And so Paul and Apollos, I'm sorry, Timothy and Apollos, led by Paul, ministering with Paul, 
partners with him and Paul talks about the dynamics of their ministry and where they are in the whole thing. And then he moves from leading to now his fourth subject. In verse 13, he says, watch ye. And those two words, very important. You could circle them and close by somewhere. You could just write the words, pay attention or wake up or be alert or be circumspect. Do you hear the, 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 the voice of a parent who's about to leave the door, leaving his kids at home? He's saying, listen, be alert and stand fast in the faith. Stand or withstand, quit you like men. Be strong. And so this exhortation to pay attention to what is going on in their lives and in their world. In the book of Exodus chapter 23, um, I read this with my kids the other night, and it, and it spoke to me. And I'm going to read you this passage because I think it, it will speak to you. It's the same exact thing um, that Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Now, um, God is actually speaking to the children of Israel uh, right after they came off of Mount Sinai. And it says in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, God speaking, he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. And then in verse 21, he says this. He says, beware of him. That's King James, but if it was New Testament King James, he would say, watch. Same word that Paul uses. It's pay attention. Be aware. So beware is be aware, or watch, or wake up, be awake of him. Obey his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you shall indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For my angel shall go before you and bring you in unto the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works. But you shall utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I'll take sickness away from the midst of you. There shall nothing cast their young nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days will I fulfill. I send my fear before you and I will destroy all the people to whom you shall come. And I will make thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. I'll send hornets before thee and shall drive out the Hivite and Canaanite and Hittite from before you. And then in verse 31, he says, and I will set thy bounds or boundaries from the Red Sea, even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Here's the promise that God is giving to the children of Israel here. He's saying, listen, my plan for you is sure and it will come to pass. I will bring you into everything that I have promised to you, but there's a conditional promise. And here's what it is. Be aware and follow closely the things that I have led you to do and the things that I am speaking to you. Don't turn to the left or to the right, but patiently endure and I'll see to it that you inherit all that I've planned for you. Now in the same spirit, Paul gives that exhortation to the New Testament church in Corinth. He says, watch you or pay attention. And here's what they're to pay attention to. He says, stand fast in the faith. Do you see that? 
Paul says, stand fast often in his epistles. He says, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. He said that to the Galatians. He said to the Philippians, stand fast in one spirit. Make sure there's unity among you and hold on to it. Again, later on to the Philippians, the same church, he says, stand fast in the Lord. Don't let anybody move you away from it. But here he says, stand fast in the faith. Well, what is that? The faith that we're called to stand fast in is the revealed body of truth that makes our faith what it is. That's the scriptures. We're to stand fast in what we, to be, what we believe. And what we believe is what God's recorded in his word. And what Paul is saying to them is, listen, if, if you have to stand fast in something, then it stands to reason that that means that there are influences that are trying to move you away from that thing which you're standing upon. And that is certainly true in every era of the church's existence, is that there are influences that are seeking to move us away from the thing that we stand upon. What do we stand upon? We stand upon the word of God. To the New Testament church at Ephesus, Paul would write in chapter 4, verse 17, He would say that you should no longer be carried about with every wind of doctrine and slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. And there are winds of doctrine that blow through the church and the entire purpose of those winds of doctrine are to move Christians away from the steadfast tenets of the faith that we hold fast. And we're called to pay attention to what is going on in the world, not just in the physical, in the political, but in the spiritual realms. And to understand that there are influences seeking to move us away from where we stand and that it is of the utmost importance that we stand where God has founded us. And every promise that God has made to us in his Bible for our lives personally and for his church collectively will come to pass. Every border that God has established from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and then from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the other side, all the borders that God has established for you and I, he will see to it that we inherit all of those things. But we are called to stand fast and to resist the sway to move away from those things. He says, stand fast in the faith. And then he says, quit you or endure like men, be strong. Understand that at times the sway is going to be powerful, but you must be strong in the whole thing. And then your motivation, let it be done through charity or with love. He says, I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia is the region where Corinth uh, you know, was situated And so Stephanus and his household were the first ones to get saved in that region. And he says that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now that's a great addiction. If there's something in this life that you want to be addicted to, let it be an addiction to a service for the Lord in the region or area of service that he has called you into. And that's part of the standing fast. It's part of how we, we, we endure through these things is that we recognize that there are people in this life that are reliant upon what we bring to the table in the body of Christ and that if we fail in the thing that God's called us to do, then that means that someone else is going to not receive what they've been called to. I know for me, uh, from the very moment that I got saved, um, it was a passion of mine to share truth. 
I love sharing the truth of God's word. To see it and to have God reveal it to my heart and apply it to my life. And then to see the fruit of that worked out in my life and to know what it can do in someone else's and then to share it and give it away and see the same thing happen in someone else. And God opened doors for me to do that from the very beginning of my Christian experience. And that's what happened. I became addicted to the ministry, addicted to serving the Lord. And there's no greater thing than to discover what it is that God has given you and then to find a place where God can use you according to your gift and then to pour yourself out into those lives. It's an incredible thing to do. And Paul commends this man, Stephanus, because his family had become addicted to the ministry of the saints. He says that you should submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helps with us and labors. Put those people in high esteem that are serving the Lord with diligence. I am glad for the coming of Stephanus. That man came to Paul to Ephesus and Fortunatus and Acacius. For that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. And whether or not that was a gift or an offering or just encouragement, or perhaps they're the ones that delivered the letter that, uh, that Paul had written to them. He says, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge you them that are such. Give them high esteem. Pay attention to them. And then signing off, he says, the churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. And so greet ye one another with a holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand, as was his custom in every letter that he would write. He would orate most of it, but he would always sign off with his own signature that would prove that he was the author. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, then let him be anathema, maranatha. Now those are heavy words, aren't they? If any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus, then let him be anathema. Anathema means accursed or cut off. I have to confess that I struggled with this verse for a long time in the early years of my faith because I thought, Lord, do I love you? I mean, I know I believe in you and I know I'm following you, but do I love you? You know, I'm not sure that I do. You know, Lord, what does this mean? You know, the whole thing. But to, to love him, you must know him. And as we grow in our knowledge of him, it follows that our love for him also will grow. And that's always the case. In John chapter 2, when Jesus um, went to the wedding feast at Galilee and he turned the water into wine, it says that the servants of that feast marveled because he saved the greatest wine for the end of the feast. They said, nobody puts out the good wine once everybody's pickled. They put out the good wine at first to impress everyone, and then once everyone's sauced, they put out the cheap stuff, the, the sangria, and everybody just kind of enjoys. It's all good enough at that point. Why are you doing it this way? And here's why. Because only in the Lord does it grow in quality as time progresses. The longer that we walk with him, the more glorious he becomes. In the beginning, it's almost like, God, who are you? You know, there's an obscureness to the whole thing. You know, I'm seeing truth. The lights are on. I know my life's been changed. But I don't know that I really know you, Lord, the way that I'm going to know you. But he's faithful to carry us, isn't he, from the infancy and then through adolescence spiritually and then into maturity. And as he does, his glory only increases. We don't see the fine print later on and say, oh, that's the catch. He was good at first. He saved my soul. Now I got to cut the grass, you know. But he becomes so much more glorious as we get to know him more and more. And when we grow to know him more and more, we love him more and more. 
And so that love starts as a seed with our salvation and our faith, and it flourishes and grows into a thing where he becomes the greatest affection and blessing of our lives. And so he says, if any man love him not, then the evidence of that, or that is evidence, rather, that they don't know him at all. And so therefore, let them be accursed. And then he follows it with the benediction of Maranatha, which means come, Lord Jesus, or even so, come, Lord. And that will be the heart cry of everyone who loves Jesus Christ, is Lord, I want to be with you in your kingdom. Your presence here now is great. What you've done for my life and you're doing for my life, Lord, it blows my mind. But I cannot wait to see you in your kingdom. And Lord, I pray you'd come quickly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. And so we come to the end of this epistle that was written to the church in the New Testament that had the most problems. Divisions, sexual sin, lawsuits, marriage problems, compromise because of taking Christian liberties, people that were drunk at the communion table and at the church potluck, the misuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, bad doctrines flowing through the church, left, right, and center, many problems. Yet, in spite of the fact that there were many problems, there was great health. And the reason was because those problems were exposed that they might be healed. And the evidence of a healthy Christian is not the absence of problems, but the willingness to lay those things open before the Lord and allow his word to discern those things, search them out, and then change them. And that equals health. Every one of us has problems. Now, can you imagine for just a moment, if you were a Corinthian Christian and you were hearing this letter read in its entirety for the first time. And all of a sudden, Paul just, you know, your pastor whom you love and esteem just said, you're messed up. You have problems with this and problems with this and you got problems here and you're failing here and you're screwed up here. How would you feel? You know how I'd feel? A little overwhelmed, right? <laughs> God, I've got so far to go. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments in your Christian experience where you felt like you were doing okay and then God just does something. He shows you where you're at, and you're like, I've come like 10 steps. I haven't taken a step. God, what in, where am I? What are you doing? I feel like such a failure and such a flop. And it feels like, God, there is so much more expected of me than I can reasonably produce. And you know what God's answer to that is? Exactly. Because he never calls us to be something that we're not or to change something that we can't. He alone has the capacity to change the things about us that need to change. What he bids us to do is to lay our lives upon the altar of living sacrifice and say, God, here I am. Order my life as you will. And as we do that, he's the one that gives to us the resources that we need to do the things that we can't. You ever think of how Daniel faced with the prospect of losing his life if he could not tell the king what his dream was. How he did it? The king said, I want to know what my dream meant. And he said, tell us the dream. And he said, nah, you tell me the dream. Then tell me what it means. And they said, nobody's ever asked anyone to do that before. We can't remember our own dreams. You can't remember your dream. How are we going to remember your dream? But Daniel looked at him and he said, I serve a God 
who can do all things. And he said, give me a little bit of time, and I'll, I'll, I'll seek the Lord. And so Daniel went, he prayed all night with his three friends, and then he blessed God because God gave him the answer. And he went into the king, and he told the king what his dream was, and then he told him what his dream meant. What do you think it was like for the disciples when they were there on the mountainside and there was a multitude of 5,000 men? And they'd been there for three days and the people were starting to get hangry, if you know what that means. If you're a woman in here and you're married to a man, you know what it means to be around someone who's hangry. It means that you're hungry and therefore you're angry. And amongst those hangry men, there were 12 apostles that were also hangry. And they looked at Jesus and they said, Lord, send the multitude away that they could go find some food. And what they were really thinking is, Lord, that we could eat some food. And Jesus looked at those men and he said, you give them food. Now, what is that like to be in that position? And Jesus looks at you and he says, you give them something that it is way outside of your ability to give to another human being. What do you do then? Well, what they did is they took what they had and they brought it to Jesus. And he broke it, gave thanks, and blessed it. And they found that not only did they have enough to feed the multitude, but they had 12 basketfuls left over, one for each of the hangry disciples that were there that day. What would Paul do when he's in the city of Ephesus and he feels that he's pressed beyond measure above strength in so much that he would despair even of life itself? God, I don't want to live another day because what is being asked of me in the place that I'm at right now is so far beyond what I have the ability to reasonably live under or give, and I can't stand this for one more day. And the answer to that is that Paul would look and he would say, but God, who raises the dead, delivered us from such a great death, and because of that, we trust that not only has he delivered us, and not only will he continue to, but that everywhere we go, he's going to cause us to flourish because he's delivered us from it. When we're hit with the overwhelmingness of what needs to change about us, we shouldn't be brought low because we don't have the resources to fix it. We should open our hearts to God and say, God, if this is what you're asking of my life, then I'm willing that you should produce and provide for me the things that I need to set it right. And when we do that, we find that by the Spirit of God, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And the outcome of that is only good fruit. So as we move into 2 Corinthians, what we're going to see is that in this one-page transition from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, is that we're going to move from the most messed up group of Christians in the New Testament era to the healthiest group of Christians in the New Testament era. And the dynamic and the tone and the meter and the substance of 2 Corinthians is so far contrasted to what's in 1 Corinthians. And God wants to do that same thing in our lives. That with every turning of the page, and that could be each morning when we rise up, that we can be different than what we were when we laid our head on the pillow the night before. And what makes the difference is not the absence of problems. It's a willingness to say, God, this is what I am. And this is what you say I should be. Make me in thine image. Amen?
Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these letters that are written and the dynamics of the things that are said. And as we search our own hearts and allow your Holy Spirit and your word to search our hearts, we ask, Father, that you would put your light upon those things in us that are holding us down and need to change. And that you would give us faith in this moment right now, Lord, to allow you, by your Spirit, to do in us what we can't do ourselves. And that those things would change. So do your will, O God. Have your way in each one of us that we would serve you with our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the overwhelmingness of life and what it produces as we yield ourselves to you. Draw us close to you now and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.